1: Rod and I got on very well and sitting in his office chatting, because it was hot, I had a, had, an open, had a shirt on and he saw the scar that I have down the middle of my chest, which is from open heart surgery done back in the day. So he saw the scar and he said, what's that from? And I, I said, oh, it was from this heart surgery I had when I was a kid.
0: And he, he started crying. Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's Real People, Real Life and Real Faith with Eric Scatterbo. Pete
2: Court is a university lecturer in creative writing and communication at Tabor in Adelaide, and he teaches students how to write effective stories. The irony is that his own story is one of the best I've ever read and has been entered into several short story competitions. So we've invited him today to share it with us. Pete, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, lovely to be here Glad to have you with us, and I should say that being on the radio is something you're very comfortable with Because you've produced and presented breakfast radio for many commercial and Christian radio stations over the years Mm -hmm. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I I have indeed, I I love the the, the flying by the seat of the pants live radio thing very, very much Which is totally opposite to the short story planning and writing and creating Uh Um, Just the anything can possibly happen kind of joy in radio I love, yeah and as we'll hear today, radio plays a big part in your story. Uh, it does, yeah. Probably doesn't start there though. Okay. It actually, the story actually starts. Uh, probably my story starts in a in a lunatic asylum. Is that right? Which, uh, which seems quite logical. Yeah. My my, my dad. My mm-hmm. dad's a psychologist, and so is my mum as well. But uh, he was actually working at a place called the Creighton, which is in Scotland. <laughs> okay, I was uh, yeah? a little curious there about
2: the asylum, so that that explains it.
1: Yeah, yeah, there you go. He was <laughs> he was working. It's a, it's a it was a mental hospital and a borstal, a boys' remand home, mm-hmm. uh, in Scotland, and it's still well known today. But he was working there as a psychologist. I was born then. Uh, shortly afterwards, mum and dad uh, got a well, dad got a gig here at the Adelaide University, University of Adelaide, mm-hmm. and uh, they came over here. I was just born when they hopped on the boat because it was back when boats were a thing, and uh, mm-hmm. they sailed over here. They were ten pound poms, I believe, is the term. <laughs> yep. although – I think my dad weighed a little bit more than that, and um, they so they came over with. I had two older sisters, and I was the very quiet newborn son. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they got to Australia, and uh, I think my two sisters got measles or, or chicken pox or something, and so they went to the doctor. And I was seven, eight months old at the time, and you know, so they they all the kids got bundled off to the to the doctor and the doctor said, yeah, the girls are fine. They'll get better. And your son will be fine. Um, the chickenpox shouldn't affect his heart condition. And mum's gone, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, because they, they, would spent, you know, come all this way. And the doctor goes, yeah, yeah, he's, he's got, he's got a heart murmur. You didn't, oh, you, you didn't, oh, sorry. know that. Whoops. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so mum has sort of gone, well, they've got it checked out and, um, the diagnosis was basically, um, it's called a patent foramen ovale, basically a hole in the heart. Kids mm-hmm. would still get it today, and it's its quite easy fixed now. But back then, the diagnosis was, yeah, that's why he's so quiet. And you know that blue lip thing? That's what that is. Mm. Um, it's where the blood basically goes through the wrong side of the heart and comes out the wrong way and doesn't quite go back through the lungs and you don't get enough oxygen. And it's not a good thing. Yeah. It's not doing what your heart's meant to do. Yeah, And the doctor said, He'll be fine. Take him home and just enjoy the last few months of his life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and mum's just gone, it's, get, it's chicken pox, and he's gone, yeah, no, no, it's really not. So cut a long story short, they, they went and saw some people, and because I think part of it may have had to do with the fact that my dad was working at the university at the time, they were able to go into the hospital there. Curiously, mm. this, is, this is sort of mid-60s. Yeah. Um, I only found out since doing research into this that there wasn't a cardiac unit. There wasn't a heart unit at the hospital. Oh, hospitals didn't have heart surgery units because heart surgery wasn't something you did. There was no way of stopping the human heart, operating on it, and restarting it again. Oh, it just it just didn't happen. Yeah, if you had something, if you had a hole in your heart, there was no way they could get into it. You had, I think they they worked that you you could have maybe if you brought the temperature down and put everybody in an nice chest, you could operate on them with a very slow beating heart and maybe you'd get five minutes of operation time. Mm-hmm. An open heart surgery takes out. So, you know, nobody's nobody's surviving that. Nobody's living through that at that time. So there wasn't even a heart unit. There was a tuberculosis ward at that time. Tuberculosis had just been cured and cleared up. They'd sort of got rid of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So there was a discussion, what do we do with this ward? Let's turn it into a cardiac ward because there isn 't such a thing, and hopefully the mm. heart surgery uh, technology is going to get better so that 's kind of the situation into which I was dropped yeah. as a child, mm-hmm. so it was just beginning, and it 's in Adelaide, you know middle of nowhere, back so. into the world you know, and um, they 've just come from you know England you know, basically the, the you know the pinnacle of medical research and all that um, to here and and they 're just going, oh. God, what have you done? Mm. <laughs> and and uh, the, whole, the whole thing was, it, it was just a, a miraculous collection of things that just shouldn't have happened. Because, of course, the other piece of history is at this time in history, the great breakthroughs in heart surgery were all coming from South Africa. Oh, okay. There was a whole lot of research was going on, and they did the first open heart surgeries really effectively. Uh, and it was the group that came from there who did the first heart transplants much, much, much later. Mm-hmm. But uh, the university and hospitals in South Africa sent teams around the world to go and show this is what we've learned. What do you think? So this was very, very, very early days. The heart-lung machine itself, which is the the great breakthrough in the technology, Mm -hmm. really was just, a. it just leaked blood everywhere and air came into it and it was just, you had to have a technician and a a guy with a spanner standing next to it constantly all the time kicking it and putting on new gaff tape and it was just really, really very, as my parents would say, very Heath Robbins and very stuck together and Very glued together Hmm. So it was just a terrifying time To be a parent with a child Undergoing heart surgery Oh yeah So uh, they got, they found, they were in a church when they came here and and found found a church that that was home and the church, everyone got together and prayed and they sort of thought, okay, well, you know, um, I guess this kid's going. So, you know, let's pray that it's a good grieving process and all this sort of stuff. My parents, both, as I say, psychologists and counselors, so they were aware that all this stuff was going to happen and, Mm. you know, the grief counseling and what they needed to take care of and all that's fine until it's your own kid. Oh, yeah. Um, But the rest, I found out a couple of years ago that my mum and dad actually got to the point of saying in the prayer meeting and with the church, sitting down and going, okay, all we want to pray is that if God wants him, he'll take him. If we get to keep him, that would be wonderful. We'd like to keep him, but if he has to go, let's make that as wonderful and as useful as it can be. Mm -hmm. And that was their prayer. They basically said, God, you want him, you can have him. And... um, I guess the, the, now that I think about it, from my point of view, the sad thing is that God said, no, I don't want him. <laughs> no, God said, no, no, well, no, no. Well, you're wait, here wait, on wait, the radio wait. today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. God said, God said, no, you keep him. No, but, but actually God said, no, wait, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. Uh, there appeared on the doorstep... The group of doctors from South Africa who came in and said, oh, "Oh, yeah, we can show you how to try and practice open heart surgery. Now, it's not really effective and it doesn't always work, but, you know, let's give it a crack, shall we? Oh, wow. So uh, they were turning up, you know, in a few months time. And so he had to go through all the process of getting healthy and fit and doing all this sort of stuff and making sure that the kid could survive and all this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all the preparation and the months and the months of the waiting for these guys to come. They went to Sydney first and did some operations over there and then they came to Adelaide. And what was going to be the first ever open heart surgery on an infant in Australia was what they had planned. Mm -hmm. So long story short, they got me, cut me open, stitched the hole up, put it back together and it's fine. Well, okay. So the, the amazing thing is I have had absolutely no um, sort of physical downside or physical uh, sort of impacts from that ever since, and I've been incredibly healthy. In fact, this, uh, this evening I'm going out to play hockey again at a very high level. I still keep playing sport and I cycle. All the way. Yeah, so it, it, my heart's working fine, which is a good thing. Wow, that's fantastic. So a tremendous success story. That was pretty cool. Yeah. However... Underlying all of this and all of the stuff that has since come out since I found it, what really struck me was, ah, oh, it would have been a good thirty years later. Mm-hmm. I was in radio. I was working in a radio station called KAFM, which is now Triple M Adelaide. <laughs> I was working at I was working at KAFM. I was producing their breakfast show and was doing a great job and having fun. And mm-hmm. part of my um, skill, expertise, joy is doing things that haven't been done before and trying to do things new and interesting ways with Mm -hmm. radio, which means quite frequently I break equipment. Oh, um, I'm glad you're in Adelaide today. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, well, you know you know how it goes when you want to make this sound effect or you want to get a microphone. You want people to hear the rain outside, so you drag the microphone out there and go, oh, yeah, that's not worked very well, has it? That sort of thing. You know, okay, so all right. I had a love-hate relationship and on-again, off-again friendship with uh, the chief engineer mm-hmm. at KFN at, at the time. His name was Rod. Um, was a lovely guy mm-hmm. and we got on very well and he was, he'd was he roll his eyes every time I walked in with a broken piece of equipment. Sorry, <laughs> I, I, we wanted to see how fast the car would go with this strapped underneath it, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, so Rod and I got on very well and um, he was leaving. He was actually quitting the station on a really hot day. It was one of those heatwave Adelaide days where mm-hmm. everything melts. It was like 45 degrees or something. Oh, and wow. He was up in his third floor of the building in his in his workshop and uh, I came in middle of the day to say goodbye because it was breakfast and I was – I'd done breakfast radio, I was coming home. So we had a beer in here, had got a beer out of the fridge in the staff room and we had a beer and sitting in his office chatting and uh, because it was hot, I had, a, had an open – had a shirt on and he saw the scar that I have down mm. the middle. Yeah. Of my chest mm-hmm. which is from open heart surgery done back in the day now the surgery is a keyhole it's a tiny pin yeah. sort of under the armpit back then they actually literally cut you open down the middle spread you out and just had the whole thing open pretty wow. much yeah so he saw the scar and he said what's that from and I, I said oh, it was from this heart surgery I had when I was a kid and he said what was it? and I just briefly explained it to him and he he started crying Our guest today is Pete
2: Kort, who's a university lecturer in creative writing at Tabor in Adelaide. Today, he's sharing his own personal story, which he's entered into several short story competitions. He'll read for us the ending of that story, and we'll find out why his co-worker began to cry when we return right here on Real Faith.
0: Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith, conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo,
2: and our guest today is Pete Court, who's a university lecturer in creative writing at Tabor in Adelaide. Today, he's sharing his own personal story, which he's entered into several short story competitions. Before the break, he began to share about a profound conversation he had with a coworker. At this point, yep. you're with your coworker, your longtime coworker at his last day. This is Rod, yeah. And you're telling him the story of your heart surgery when you're 2 years old and yep. all of a sudden he starts crying. Yeah. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. Can you can you read for us this short story about what happened next?
1: Sure, sure. And and I, I it, yeah, cuz now looking back on it, it it's yeah, it took me a long time to sort of come to terms with with what had actually happened. Um mm-hmm. cuz he was very very self assured. He was he was, you know, really solid, one of these really smart people. They know what they're doing and you yeah. know, they're always in control. Mm-hmm. But um, he he went on, as, as we were sitting there that, that day, he said something along He said, yeah, our daughter mm-hmm. was in the Royal Adelaide. She was a tiny thing, he said, and she was going to have an operation that would fix her up. His eyes left me. They looked back to the shiny linoleum room in the big hospital where his daughter had died, only a day away from the impossible surgery that had opened my chest. His voice continues to echo down those morning corridors. They asked us if they could use use her body to try the surgery on her corpse before they did it for real. I stared at his distant eyes, the tears, the grown man with the daughter who had never grown up, this daughter who fell short of the dream, the prayers fallen still, the body failed. And then they had dared to ask if they could hack into her to use her death, his grief, to help some other child, some stranger, some nobody he would probably never know. He looked up at me, and I braced to see pain, maybe even accusation, blame perhaps I was here, and his daughter wasn't. He wipes at a tired eye and raises his bottle to me. well, he croaked, "It's good to meet you wow yeah wow it was it was it was quite a moment, and the interesting thing that strikes me now is something that wasn't in the original story that I wrote, and I think this is the thing that has continued with me I guess uh, that rod the chief engineer at KAFM at the time mm-hmm. um, was I believe at the same time or just previously or whatever had been heavily involved in the Christian radio station Christian community radio as it was then mm-hmm. it was on the board I think uh, and it was a radio station where I ended up again many years later working and producing breakfast and doing lots of work with but I didn't know at that time that he was a he was a Christian guy that he was a man of faith mm And I thought, you know, the the whole story for me had been about, oh, wasn't it wonderful to be saved? And my parents who had gone with their prayer group and they had prayed faithfully and I had been saved. But so had he. I have no doubt that he and his friends and his church had spent many, many hours anguishing, praying for their daughter to live. And Mm. she didn't.
2: Yeah. That's the other side. And it was,
1: yeah. And. The stunning thing is that it's not life or death. It wasn't me living and her dying or whatever that made the difference. It was being able to see each outcome as an incredibly valuable, powerful thing. Mm. Um, And the fact that Rod actually lost his daughter is sad and tragic. Mm, Yeah. But I know it had an enormous impact on him. And as a man of faith, it did have an enormous impact on him and on me too, particularly. So –
2: Here it is, 25, 30 years later, he had no idea whatever happened to that other little baby, the one that survived. No.
1: No. Never
2: knew. And you had been
1: working together for several years. We had been working together for a long time. In fact, he had been working sort of around me and we had been working around each other for many times, many years in different places. Yeah. That's the nature of the radio business, as you'd know. You're yeah, People all over the place. And, and yeah, those connections, it was amazing.
2: And if you hadn't had an open shirt that showed your scar, the conversation never would have come up. No,
1: no. If it had wow. been just an ordinary, you know, nice, comfortable, calm day, I probably would have been wearing one of my really cool rock and roll T-shirts. <laughs> but I had an open neck, like a buttoned up shirt because it was so hot. Yeah. Weird, huh?
2: Yeah, and so you had this conversation and you met the father yeah. of... The little girl who they had the practice operation on the day before they did it on you successfully. Yeah,
1: yeah. The the stunning impact for me, I think, at the moment was that I had no idea they'd done that. You know, oh, you didn't know. I'd, I didn't know that they'd been practicing on on dead babies. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which sounds brutal but that's the fact. And yeah. and it's it's a medical fact they have to do it. And if I'd really sat down and thought about it I goes, "Oh, okay, so how many people had to give up their lives um, so that I could have this successful operation." <laughs> yeah. And and I we forget that. We yeah. we're so beautifully medically advanced now, mm-hmm. sort of, that we forget how many people have have died so that we can mm. have this advance. Yeah. And so that we can be here. And it really does put into perspective what death actually means?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What, like, it's, it's no big deal. Actually, it's usable as it is. It, it's not. I mean, it's as as heartbreaking and as grieving as it is for us. It is not the end. It is just part of a process and a system, if you like. That's much bigger than our medical understanding. So, what impact did that moment have on you? Um. It took me a long time to finish the beer with him. <laughs> uh, I think it, it it did drive home for me the fact that this was not an accident. Mm. That yep. it was it was not just luck. It was not just medical skill. It wasn't the right people in the right place at the right time, and it wasn't just an accident. My my living and my being alive was not um, a mistake. It was a deliberate, planned process. Mm. And. I can tell you a little bit more. I went f- looking further back through my life. I can see how this one surgery, if you will, has been touched on and has had enormous impact on lives of others as we've moved along. And I haven't mm. even noticed. And it's God's been using this thing, and I, I didn't know. It's <laughs> weird. Yeah. So tell us about it. What are the other uh, impacts? That well, it's the other had? before I before I came to KAFM uh, to work with with Rod. Um, who was leaving at the point of this story. Um, I had worked with uh, SAFM, which is the, the big old stereo station at the time. It was the biggest, number one radio station in Australia. Um, it was doing hugely well. They had a breakfast show called The Morning Zoo, um, which starred a guy called John Vincent. Um, people in Sydney would probably know Vinny. He was a huge DJ over there, did very well on the breakfast show, then came to Adelaide to help set up the SAFM Morning Zoo. And I was taken on as their producer and comedy writer for mm-hmm. the show, and got on very, very well with Vinny. He's one of these people. There's, there's, you know, he's one of these people who in radio cares more about talking to people than talking about himself. Mm. Uh, and he's a really, really smart. Was a really smart operator. He he died a few years ago um, as mm-hmm. a result of his heart condition. Which is how we eventually bonded very strongly because I mentioned the the team coming from South Africa to perform the first ever open heart surgery on an infant, Mm -hmm. which was me. Yeah. Um, The week before they did that, they were in Sydney performing the first ever open heart surgery on an adult in Australia. And that adult was a 21-year-old John Vincent. Oh, my goodness. Who I would yes end up working with on the morning z. Oh my! Now, goodness, the, in- the connections. The interesting thing you ask about what impact this has had on my life. Yes, yeah. this, this is probably the thing that had the most impact. Actually, was finding out that Vinny had was basically you know we we were we were heart brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were heart bros. Yeah. but what occurred? He was he was as I said he was twenty one. So he was he was pretty much a, a, a bloke. Uh, he had a career. He was professionally very successful when he had this surgery. But up till that point, he had been like I was before the surgery. I was slow moving, unable mm. to do much, very, very easily out of breath and stuff. So Vinny had grown up with this sort of this self-imposed persona of being a sports hater you know, he his he, part of his image and his identity, even on air, was to not like sport, and he would mock the football season and laugh at cricket players and all that. Mm-hmm. That was part of who he was as a yeah. gag. You know, yeah. it's like setting up uh, Barry Manilow as your as your scapegoat. He would use sport as a scapegoat mm-hmm. because he had never been able to do it, so he had developed this. Self defense mechanism, I guess, yeah, that encapsulated who he was based on this. So he had never been able to do that. Then he had his surgery, and it wasn't particularly 100% successful because you know, still very new, they were still practicing it, yeah. And he still continued, even when I was working with him 30 years later or something. Um, asked this I hate sport kind of guy, he didn't do a lot of exercise, he looked after himself a little better, he'd given up smoking. Mm. Uh, That was a good thing. Yeah. Um, But he still had this anti-sport persona. On the other hand, I had parents who had said, let go. They had let go of what I was going to be when I was basically a year old. They said, you know, this is not our child anymore, God. This is your kid. You do it. Mm. You, You do what you want. Let him be his thing. And so I had grown up never being told that there were things I should not do. Oh, okay. I mean- I'd had open heart surgery as an infant, this open heart surgery that they didn't know was ever going to do anything was going to work. They didn't know how bad it was going to be, but I had never been stopped from doing anything. So I started playing, continued to play sport, ended up playing at a very high level. I've always been fit and I've always been loving playing sport and and it is part now of my community and also it's part of almost my spiritual life to mm. be fit and to understand what fitness means and why it's so important and, and all this sort of stuff. And I love it. You know? yeah. Vinny, on the other hand, hated it. Why? Because it was who he was. It was what he mm. had chosen to become. And that really struck me that we can choose who we are based on what we tell ourselves and that shapes enormously mm. how we go about living our lives. So, quite a
2: contrast between the impact the surgery had on you and on Vinny.
1: Yeah. I suspect that as Vinny was going through the process of getting ready for heart surgery, there weren't a whole lot of people praying for his well-being and his future. Hmm. And I think, that, I think that probably was borne out in his life.
2: Wow. So, quite a contrast.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah.
2: now you're going from strength to strength, teaching people how to write effective short stories.
1: Yeah, well, that's one of, one of the many, one of the many things I'm doing with my time now. Yeah. Yeah, we're keeping And the short stories, interestingly enough, the short stories that uh, we've been collecting, I'm, I'm convening a thing called the Stories of Life competition where mm-hmm. people tell stories of faith and testimony. Um, it's the only short story competition I know of in the world where the stories are also then recorded by the authors to be played on radio. Oh. So those stories... Will now be broadcast in Adelaide on Life FM.
2: And we are so thankful that you shared your story with us today. Thank you so much, Pete Court. It's been my pleasure. I have to say that Pete's story is one of the best I've ever heard in my life. And to think that he had been working with his coworker Rod for several years without even knowing the connection they had through the death of Rod's daughter, incredible. As mentioned earlier, Pete is a university lecturer in creative writing at Tabor in Adelaide, and he is also involved in something called the Stories of Life project. That's where people from all over Australia submit short stories for a competition, and the finalists are included in a book each year. And as Pete just said, their stories are recorded for broadcast on the radio. So that is quite a competition. To find out more, you can go to their website, storiesoflife.net. That's storiesoflife.net. And I think it's great that Christians are using their creative gifts and skills for the Lord and expressing some profound experiences they've had in life, just like we heard today from Pete Court. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Pete's amazing story. Until next time, when we'll hear another story of faith,